Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen, and may God bless to us that reading from his word. Shall we come before him in prayer? Let's pray. O Lord, as James has reminded us, we have here before us an inspired record of Jesus' teaching and ministry. Our prayer this evening is that we may hear what the Lord Jesus has to say to us. Help me not to stand in the way of his words. May we hear his voice and may we respond in faith and in obedience. For his sake we ask it. Amen. The story is told of an American tourist who went into a shop and saw someone who looked remarkably like the queen. So he went up to her and said, Excuse me, madam, but you look very much like Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. To which the queen replied, How very reassuring. As we study this passage together this evening, I wonder if we will recognize ourselves in it. If we do, that will indeed be very reassuring. Do we look the way we should? The title I've been given for the sermon this evening is Kingdom People. And I found that a very helpful title because it brings together what is in some respects a very disparate passage. Verses 12 to 17 of chapter 4 mark the formal beginning of Jesus' public ministry. With the death of John the Baptist, the man commissioned by God to prepare for the inauguration of the king, the stage is set for Jesus to begin his ministry. Verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is near, because the king has come. In verses 18 to 22, we see Jesus calling his first disciples, Simon and his brother Andrew, and James and his brother John. The four of them are fishermen, but from now on, they are to be fishers of men. Their job is to recruit citizens for the kingdom. Then, as Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom in verses 23 to 25, his message attracts great crowds and is authenticated by miracles. When we move into chapter 5, Jesus begins what has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount where he explains what is expected of those who, as followers of the king, belong to the kingdom of heaven. What I'd like to do this evening is to highlight from this passage some of the main characteristics of kingdom people. Our focus will be mainly, but not exclusively, 
on chapter 5, on the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is commonly called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are, in effect, a pen portrait of kingdom people. It's worth saying that there are eight Beatitudes, but the Beatitudes don't list eight different kinds of blessed people. It's not as if one person over there is blessed because they're poor in spirit, while someone else over here is blessed because they mourn or they're meek. No, the Beatitudes are all of a piece. Together they describe what all kingdom people should be like, at least in a measure. Let me highlight five main characteristics of kingdom people from this passage. The first characteristic is an ongoing repentance, an ongoing repentance. We see that repentance is at the very heart of Jesus' message. We've seen that already in chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was shorthand for his preaching. The basic response Jesus called for was repentance. That was the same message which John the Baptist had preached. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now the king himself is reinforcing the same message. The Jews who first heard that message weren't fit for the king. They were sinners in the sight of a holy God. They fell far short of his perfect standards. That's why they needed to repent. They needed to acknowledge their sin. More than that, they needed to start living differently. Instead of going their own way, Instead of doing their own thing, they needed to turn through 180 degrees and start following the king. And it's the same with us. To enter Jesus' kingdom, we need to repent. We need to take our sins seriously and confess it. But we also need to turn from our sin with God's help and seek to live differently. Repentance involves not only a change of mind, but also a change of heart and a change of direction. Look with me, please, how the Beatitudes develop these two aspects of repentance. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't speaking here about the materially poor. He's speaking about the poor in spirit. In other words, his focus is on the spiritually poor, those who recognize their poverty before God and acknowledge their spiritual paupers in his sight. We've all heard of Dr. Bernardo's Bernardo's homes. When Dr. Bernardo opened his first home, there was only one condition of eligibility for children. 
and that was destitution. If a child was destitute, he or she was eligible for the home. And the kingdom of heaven is like that too. It's open only to those who are humble enough to recognize that they are destitute before God. It's for those who are poor in spirit. The king is looking for paupers, people who know that without him they're utterly helpless. The second beatitude in verse 4 makes the same point. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus has in mind those who mourn over sin, those who are cut up about their failures and feel the strain of living in a fallen world. Alongside this negative aspect of repentance is the positive aspect. Look with me at the fourth beatitude in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The words hunger and thirst are strong words. They describe an intense longing. Kingdom people, Jesus says, are passionate about living in accordance with right standards. They want to live in a way that pleases God. They want to be holy. That's reinforced by the sixth beatitude, which is blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus is concerned about what we're like on the inside. What are we like at the control center of our being? What do we think about when our mind slips into neutral? What do we want more than anything else? What are our hidden ambitions? Truly repentant people have their hearts set on God and what pleases Him. Kingdom people, Jesus says, are repentant. It's only when we see the seriousness of sin and cast ourselves on God's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ that we enter the kingdom in the first place. And once we're in the kingdom, repentance is ongoing. It isn't the work of a moment, but of a lifetime. The reformer Martin Luther insisted that the Christian life is repentance. We remain sinners for as long as we live, and so repentance needs to become a lifestyle. Day by day, we need to confess our sin. And day by day, in a variety of situations, we need to resist temptation and choose to go God's way. Now, we need to be clear, absolutely clear, that we don't earn acceptance with God on the basis of our repentance. That's not how we're made right with God. We're made right with Him solely on the grounds of what Jesus has done on our behalf. He lived the life we should have lived, and He has died the death which we deserve to die. It's on the basis of his life, death, and resurrection that any of us is accepted by God. We need to be clear on that. 
Repentance, nevertheless, is a fundamental characteristic of kingdom people. We need to acknowledge our destitution. We need to see the gravity of our sin. We need to see our need of God's mercy. And even though, as Christians, we're being renewed after the image of Christ, as Christ lives in us by his Spirit, we need daily forgiveness for daily sins. Indeed, if we're not repentant, if sin causes us no concern, and if we're indifferent to holiness, we ought to ask ourselves if we're kingdom people at all. As Christians, we need to avoid two extremes. One is to assume that it doesn't really matter how we live, because after all, the Christian life is all about grace. We hear a lot about that these days. Yes, the Christian life is all about grace. God shows us his unmerited favor, and it's by his power at work in us that we can begin to become the people God wants us to be. But it's precisely because God is at work in us that we cannot be unconcerned about sin. Sin should matter to us because it matters to God. The opposite mistake is to despair on account of the continued presence of sin in our lives. Do you sometimes wonder, how can I be a Christian when my life is indefensible? Kingdom people are repentant. We're not perfect. That's why we mourn. That's why we're poor in spirit. It's because sin is a continuing reality in our lives that repentance is ongoing. If as a Christian you're concerned about sin in your life, that's a good sign. It indicates you're sensitive to its presence and uncomfortable for all the right reasons. The answer is to keep on repenting. What does the Apostle John say? He writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A characteristic of kingdom people is an ongoing repentance. Do you recognize that characteristic in yourself? Do I? A second characteristic of kingdom people is a countercultural lifestyle. The Beatitudes challenge the values and standards of this world. They're out of step with how society around us generally thinks and behaves. Take, for example, the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Is that what people around us really think? Not a bit of it. They say, blessed are the pushy. Blessed are those who elbow their way to the top. Blessed are those who won't let anyone stand in their way. Our society sees meekness as something to be made fun of. They make a joke of it. The meek will inherit the earth. 
if that's all right with the rest of you. Let's be honest. Meekness doesn't come naturally to any of us. We naturally use our strength to get our own way. It's hard to rein ourselves in and subordinate our interests to those of others. In being meek, kingdom people go against the grain. That doesn't mean we're weak. The Lord Jesus was meek and lowly of heart. But he wasn't weak and insipid. I like the definition of meekness as strength under control. Kingdom people don't need to push their weight around. They can afford to live differently because they shall inherit the earth. Those who've trusted in Christ will reign with them in a new heaven and a new earth. They've got it all coming. Knowing we shall inherit the earth puts everything in this world into perspective. We can sit loose to some of the things other people value so highly and strive so hard to get. The well-known Anglican vicar John Stott wrote a commentary in the Sermon on the Mount, and he gave it the title, Christian Counterculture. That's a really good title, because in this passage, Jesus highlights the different standards by which his disciples need to live. He wants us not to be squeezed into the world's mold. He calls for a countercultural lifestyle. Do you recognize that characteristic in yourself? Do I? The third characteristic I'd like to highlight is a distinctive witness. We see that most clearly in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5. Let's read these verses again. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus wants his disciples to be distinctive. He compares them to salt and light. Salt is used to season food. It enhances the flavor of food. It's also useful as a preservative. It stops things from decaying. In the same way, the distinctive witness of kingdom people improves society and checks unwholesome influences. The metaphor of light makes a similar point. Kingdom people are to bring light into a dark world and dispel the darkness around them. In the early 19th century, the Christian William Wilberforce was instrumental in securing the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire in the first place, and then the abolition of slavery itself. 
Lord Shaftesbury, later in the 19th century, secured widespread, far-reaching social reform. These men achieved public prominence. But down through the centuries, there have been countless unsung Christians who have made life better for others and been an influence for good. They have been salt and light just where they were. Two things are worth noting. One, Jesus calls for a distinctive witness. Look at what he says in verse 12. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. Kingdom people are to be distinctively different. There's no point if we're the same as everyone else, if we merge into the background. If we're no different from those around us, we shall have no impact. Christians are not to be different solely for the the sake of being different. There's no point in simply being oddities. But I suspect the challenge for most of us is this. Are we at all distinctive in how we live and in the standards we live by? As Christians, are we any different from our friends and colleagues? Would they even know that we were Christians? Only a distinctive witness makes an impact on a watching world. That's a real challenge because the pressure today is on Christians to conform. But Jesus says that if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And the second point that is worth noting is that we are to live distinctively, not to draw attention to ourselves. That's not the point of it. But rather to point people to our Heavenly Father. Verse 16, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that by living distinctively, Christians are to point others to the God who is at work in them, making them the people they are. A distinctive witness. Is that a characteristic you see in yourself? The fourth characteristic of kingdom people is a long-term perspective. Kingdom people live in the present, with an eye to the future. In chapter 4, verse 23, we were told how as Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he healed every disease and affliction among the people. His ministry was authenticated by miracles of healing. These miracles pointed to who he was. He was God in human form. But they also pointed to why he had come. He had come to usher in a kingdom where suffering and sickness would be no more. But although the kingdom has been inaugurated, it hasn't yet been fully realized. The Beatitudes make that clear. 
The people described there are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but they still suffer. Indeed, verse 10 speaks of them as being persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's interesting how the promises of the Beatitudes are mostly in the future tense. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. You see, we don't have it all here and now. There's a tension between the now and the not yet. We enjoy some of the blessings in some measure here and now, but only in the future will the kingdom be brought to completion and the blessings received in full. Take, for example, the fourth beatitude, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we begin to see progress here and now as we are gradually conformed into the image of God's Son by the power of His Holy Spirit. But that work will remain incomplete in this life. Only in the life to come shall we be filled completely with that righteousness for which we long. In a similar way, those who are pure in heart, who strive for integrity, the promise is that they will see God. And in a sense, they see Him now. They have fellowship with Him here and now. They see the invisible God by faith, but it is only by faith. One day, faith will give way to sight. The Apostle John again, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Kingdom people don't have it all now. Kingdom people have a long-term perspective. They take the long view. They live life here and now in the light of an assured future. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? The final characteristic of kingdom people I'd like to highlight is what I've called an objective blessedness. An objective blessedness. The word which is translated as blessed in our Bibles is sometimes rendered as happy. But that's not really a good translation. What the word denotes isn't so much a feeling as a state. We might say, Kingdom people are fortunate. Kingdom people are to be envied. That's why I've described the blessedness in question as objective. It relates to our status rather than to how we happen to be feeling at any particular time. Think of little Prince George. His experience of life at the moment may in many respects, be not dissimilar to that of many children of his age, of the same age. But the fact remains that he has a unique status. It's a status he may not be 
particularly aware of in some respects in terms of his experience. But it is a unique status, nevertheless, and it confers significant privileges, at least in the future. In a similar way, kingdom people are blessed, not so much in terms of what they experience here and now, as on account of their status and promised inheritance. Kingdom people may find life here and now hard. They may face discouragement. They may suffer persecution. They may not feel particularly happy. But on an objective assessment of their status, they are fortunate. They know where they're headed. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They know that they will be comforted. They will be satisfied. They will see God. They will inherit the earth. In the words of an old hymn, I have a heritage of joy which yet I must not see. The hand that bled to make it mine is keeping it for me. And in the meantime, even in the difficulties kingdom people face, they know that they are under the care and protection of the king. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Kingdom people have an objective blessedness. They know where they're headed, and they're in a privileged position here and now. By contrast, the situation of those who are not citizens of the kingdom is entirely different. As Jesus says, says later in the sermon, wide is the gate, and broad is a road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But kingdom people have an objective blessedness. Five characteristics of kingdom people. An ongoing repentance, a countercultural lifestyle, a distinctive witness, a long-term perspective, an objective blessedness. Are these characteristics true of you? Do you see something of yourself in this portrait of kingdom people? Can you, like the queen, find this? How very reassuring. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that we may hear what it has to say to us humbly. 
with open hearts. Help us to respond in an appropriate way. We recognize that your standards are high, incredibly high. And yet we thank you too for that forgiveness which is freely available to those who repent and to call on the name of the Lord. We thank you too for that help which you make available to us by your Spirit. And we pray that this week we may live as kingdom people by the power of your Spirit and give you glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.